Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, September 19, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, do you remember in The Wizard of Oz that one scene where Dorothy, the tinsman, the scarecrow, the cowardly lion, they're, they're making their way into the Emerald City. Uh, and they get in, they've been in the city for a day or two. Uh, remember that uh, like hair salon treatment that the uh, cowardly lion got, right? Uh, and then they've worked their way past the guard at the gate that cries bucket of tears. Uh, and then they finally are ready to meet the man that they've been journeying together for so long to see. And they go down this long, green, arched hallway, and of course the lion is so afraid, and his fear is making everyone else jittery because of it. And they get into the main room where they see the wizard's altar, I guess you might say, with with the red smoke and the orange flames, and then the, the giant green face of the wizard starts floating sort of mystically up in front, uh, and he says, I am the great and powerful Oz. Who are you? And then one by one, the, the travelers timidly approach, and of course, they're introducing themselves, but they're so rudely greeted by the wizard until, of course, the lion just simply falls over and faints because he's so freaked out. Well, I think that many people, especially those not in the faith, have this kind of image about God. Author David Dark, in his book, The Sacredness of Questioning Everything, uh, puts it this way when he talks about how some people envision the holy. They see him as, quote, an all-powerful deity, a great and powerful Wizard of Oz type who refuses to be questioned and threatens anyone who dares to doubt or protest. The less reverent candidly observe that this god is the perfect model for a brutal dictator, the cosmic crime boss who runs everything and expects us to be grateful. Well, as we mentioned last week, Many in the faith see it as a sin to doubt or question God, which brings us to the topic for today, is doubt for atheists only? Welcome to week two in this very short three-part series on wrestling with doubt. And we're, we're taking what some may call the risk of examining issues of doubt and faith. And along the way, it is my prayer and hope that we may discover that faith and doubt are more interconnected than we may think. Now, it should be stated up front, of course, there are some people who choose not to believe. This Reverend Fun cartoon gets to the point. A man is standing at the pearly gates, looks up at St. Peter, and says, yeah, whatever, you know, I still don't believe in any of this, all right? Or this sign from a bus campaign in the United Kingdom and New Zealand that says, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. In his book, Faith and Doubt, author and pastor John Ortberg comments on the number of bestsellers in the last decade or so that have uh, been by professional doubters. They're part of a movement known as New Atheism. People who don't just doubt that God exists, 
but they're certain that God doesn't. And in fact, in some cases, as Ortberg says, they're quite mad at God for not existing. Philosopher uh, Daniel C. Bennett wrote Breaking the Spell to argue that religious faith has been protected by this idea that it's holy or sacred. He says just a little bit of critical thinking would reveal it to be nonsensical and would, as the title says, break the spell of faith. Noted author Sam Harris writes that the only difference between believing in Jesus and thinking that you are Jesus is the number of people in each category. He writes, while religious people are generally not mad, their core beliefs are. British journalist Christopher Hitchens wrote, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. And, well, the subtitle pretty much says where that book goes, right? Then there's Oxford biologist Richard Dawkins and his book, The God Delusion. In that book, he writes this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, blood-thirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, and then he starts getting really hostile after that, right? <laughs> Ortberg finishes this section by saying this, I don't like books by believers or doubters that make it sound like the question of God is so simple that anyone with half a brain will agree with them and that people in the other camp are either foolish or downright evil. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said that the best way that we as Christians might determine what it is we should think or believe or, or move forward towards in life, well, it comes from four basic sources. First, of course, is Scripture. Scripture, what the Bible says, that's foundational, that's the core, that's the bedrock of what we believe as people of faith. Then there is tradition, the tradition of the church. What have Christians over the centuries taught about what is right and true? Then experience. We can't just stop at uh, the Bible and tradition. Uh, how is your own journey of life uh, introduced you to new discernments and ideas of what God might be saying, and then finally, reason, that we have brains for a reason, and that education and study all also should help inform. And so, Scripture, tradition, reason, experience, of course, with Scripture being foundational, all four of those, what the church has come to call the Wesleyan quadrilateral, or four equal sides, that taken together should give us a sense of what it is we are to do and think and believe in life. Now, it's this last category of reason that some people find incongruous with faith. I mean, doesn't science contradict much of faith, people ask? Isn't atheism more about fact and Christianity more about faith? Well, author Alistair McGrath, in his book Doubting, disagrees. He says that nobody can rationally prove that God exists. True. But there's another side of it. Nobody can disprove that God exists either. And he continues by saying that since atheists cannot prove there is no God, then technically their atheism is also a faith. They don't like to think about that in terms of an argument. He writes, the simple fact 
is that when anyone starts making statements about the meaning of life, the existence of God, or whether there is life after death, they are making statements of faith. Now, I believe that science is a gift from God, that we've come to know incredible things through science, like the makeup of our DNA, the chemical structure of planetary atmospheres. But can science tell us why we're here or whether God exists? Of course not. I mean, science also has its limits. Stephen Jay Gould, widely regarded as America's greatest evolutionary biologist before his death from cancer, he was not a religious believer, but he was adamant that his own religious skepticism was not the result of science. He wrote, To say it for all my colleagues and for the umpteenth millionth time, science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. We can neither affirm nor deny it. We simply can't comment on it as scientists. Now, Alistair McGrath also mentioned an interesting set of surveys in his book that was taken at both the beginning and the end of the 20th century. And it was concerning the religious beliefs of scientists. Now, within scientific, uh, within, sorry, atheistic circles, it's widely thought that as beliefs and practices of the scientific worldview come to be adopted in Western culture, then the number of practicing scientists with any form of religious beliefs would dwindle down to practically nothing, right? So the more that we know about science, the more that faith will become obsolete among scientists. So in a 1916 survey, uh, it was taken uh, asking scientists about their religious beliefs, 40%, 40% said that they had some form of religious belief. Now at the time, the figure was quite shocking, even scandalous. 40% seemed way too high at the turn of the 20th century for scientists to still have issues or, or beliefs in faith. 80 years later, they repeated the same survey, 1996. Uh, a whole lot more of science had taken place uh, during the century. Guess what percentage it was for scientists who had uh, uh, faith beliefs? 40%, not quite 60, but still 40 now, we understand that some people outside of the faith, like the new atheists that I referred to earlier, they have their doubts. But what about those of us inside the faith? Is doubting for atheists only? Writer Mike Novak says that doubt is not so much a dividing line that separates people into camps, the, the believers and the non-believers. No, he says it's more of a razor's edge that runs through every human soul. For example, the great evangelist Billy Graham, when he was near 90 years old, he was asked if he believed that after he died, he would hear God say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Reverend Graham paused, and after what seemed to be a surprisingly long pause of inner struggle said, I sure hope so. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther, champion of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, was approached by an elderly woman who was troubled by doubt. And so he says, tell me, ma'am, when you recite the creeds, do you believe them? Oh, yes, yes, she said, most certainly. Martin Luther said, then go in peace, because you believe more and better than even I do. 
Elie Wiesel, when he was asked to describe his faith, used the adjective wounded. He said, my tradition, he's Jewish, my tradition teaches that no heart is as whole as a broken heart, and I would say that no faith is as solid as a wounded faith. And Wiesel should know this Jewish man survived the German concentration camps in World War II. Renowned writer Madeleine Lingle once said, those who believe they believe in God, but without passion in the heart, without anguish in the mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, <laughs> well, they only believe in the idea of God and not in God himself. We need not look farther than our only holy scriptures to find story after story about people of faith that struggled and wrestled with uh, questioning God and doubting. Last week, we looked at the story of doubting Thomas. We could go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, and Moses has been used by God to rescue God's people from slavery in Egypt, and God brings them out with these amazing signs and wonders and provides for their every need, and still... The people of God complain and grumble and question and doubt. And in Exodus 17, verse 7, after, after a particularly difficult moment of ministry, the narrator tells us this. Moses called the place Massa, which means test, and Meribah, which means quarrel, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Earlier in the message, I mentioned the author Dan Dark and his wonderful book, The Sacredness of Questioning Everything. And, and his whole premise of this book is that it's okay to question. It's okay to question authority, the media, yourself, faith, society, the government. Nothing should be off limits when it comes to questioning. He recalls on his own faith journey how uh, over time, the Bible ceased to be what he said uh, was a catalog of all the things one has to believe or pretend to believe in order to not go to hell. And instead, he said, when it became a broad, multifaceted collection of people and their stories crying out to God, a collection of close encounters with a God who is present somehow in the midst even of these people's cries and questions and doubts. Last week, we talked about not knowing everything there is to know about everything that there is, especially when it comes to God. And I want to go back to John Wesley again. And he liked to say that in the essentials as Christians, in the essentials, we have to have unity. So this understanding of, of the Trinity, there, God, the, the Father, the Creator, there is Jesus, the Son, the Redeemer, there is the Holy Spirit that is with us as the provider and the sustainer, and, and, and the importance of Scripture in our lives. The, those things are basically the essentials. So in the essentials, Wesley said, we have to have unity. But in the non-essentials, there must be liberty, meaning there's a whole bunch of other topics, uh, uh, important issues of faith, like, uh, and I'll come to an example in just a minute, but we all have uh, these things that, are, that we're passionate about in our faith. And as important as they are, those are not the essentials, they're non-essentials. So Wesley says we should have liberty, we should have freedom. There should be the opportunity for diverse thinking and feeling. But here's the kicker, Wesley says, in everything there should be charity or love, right? And I think that's one of the reasons that United Methodism has 
uh, been attractive to so many people. So when it comes to the core beliefs, right, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the centrality of Scripture, we stand together united. But everything else, everything else, whether it's a topic of homosexuality, abortion, genetic engineering, alcohol and tobacco, gambling, immigration, you can add whatever the hot button topics are in your life or in the community around us. In everything else, we must allow for a variety of beliefs as long as, and this is what's most important, as long as we do it in a spirit of love. And a spirit of love doesn't mean I will love you as long as you agree with me or as long as you don't challenge my beliefs. No, no, no. It means I will love you no matter what, even if we disagree on these important issues of faith, because in the name and spirit of Jesus, I am inspired to love you, period. On Wednesday nights, for Food for Thought, Pastor John's been using a book by Jared Bias called Love Matters More. And in case you can't read the subtitle, allow me to tell you what it says. How fighting to be right keeps us from loving like Jesus. I mean, just hearing that subtitle, that should begin to work on our hearts, don't you think? Well, in his book, in one of the chapters, he wrote about a time that he used to lead a weekly class uh, called For Skeptics only. He said he was uh, one of five teaching pastors on staff, so any of the Sundays that he wasn't preaching, uh, he led this class that happened during the worship service on Sunday morning. And he said it was a place where uh, someone's spouse and or family could attend because they came to church, but they didn't really want to sit in service and, as he said, strain their face from all the eye rolling (laughs) from what they hear. So this was a 10-week course, And they went through all of the common objections to Christianity, and they talked openly about it. He said the goal of the class was to help people see that it's okay to express one's doubts in church and that God would not zap them or strike them down with a bolt of lightning. He said there was one woman named Carol. She came to the first session, and within 30 minutes, she was in tears. Now, they started the class by asking why it is that people had come to this class. And most of them said either because they didn't believe or because, to be honest, I was just wanting to avoid the service and I don't mind talking about things, right? Not Carol, no. She couldn't answer the question because she really wasn't sure why she was there in the first place. Carol said she thought she was a Christian. In fact, she had been a Christian her entire life, but lately she had some questions, questions about evolution, about homosexuality, about why good things, bad things happen to good people. And she said her family, in an attempt to speak the truth in love, told her that she probably wasn't a Christian anymore and that she should go to that class so she could learn the right things to believe. And so now she's thrown into this swamp of self-doubt, and she was just a mess and wasn't sure why she was there. Jared writes, Her family thought they were doing what was right. They had been taught that since people go to hell for believing the wrong things, the most loving thing they could do for Carol was to tell her where she was getting it wrong and provide her the list of right things to believe. Now he goes on to say there's two major problems with this. First, the Bible never says that people go to hell for believing the wrong things. In fact, Jesus often spoke about the dangers of judgment specifically among religious types. And second, he writes... On the list of most loving things you can do for another human being, showering them with your enlightened opinion is probably around 100, 
number 138 on the list, right after re-gifting them a present that you didn't want, but were convicted yourself they would love. <laughs> so in case you were wondering, in case there was any uncertainty, friends, let me clear this up for you in as simple a way as I know. People of faith have doubts. People who believe in God have honest questions about God, from questions like, is God truly there when so many people doubt his existence, to does God really love me, love me in spite of all the choices I've made in my life? Or if God is so good, then why does God allow so much suffering in this world? Questions and doubts are a natural part of life and faith, friends. Faith and religion should be questioned, objection, objected to, talked about, because God is big enough to handle our doubts. God is not going to strike us down with a bolt of lightning. God is not the great and powerful Oz, who, by the way, spoiler alert, wasn't even as powerful as everyone thought he was. Heck, most religious traditions have been constantly objecting to themselves for centuries and centuries, challenging old categories with new religious proclamations. Our denomination, the United Methodist Church, has been wrestling with LGBTQ inclusion for quite some time now, and we still haven't come to an understanding yet. This is how religions work, and devastating criticism of religion has to be a part of it. We're not just permitted to critique and complain and reform. We and other faith traditions are practically bound to do so. That's part of boiling things down to what is truly essential and important. But here's the part that we can't forget. That as we question, as we doubt, as we uh, uh, wrestle with and object to things that come up on our faith journey, let us be open to the possibility, and this may sound shocking. Are you ready? Be open to the possibility that God might still have something new to say to us today. I mean, no matter how much we think we know or believe, in fact, sometimes it's in the very act of questioning that we get drawn into a deeper experience of faith. Now, we could be, we could be right about what we know and think and believe, but then again, and I love it how John, uh, John Wesley said this, um, you know, to, to, uh, to be, to be uh, mistaken in a few things, I, I'm probably mistaken in a few, and I'm probably downright wrong in some others. Right? We have to, if we're going to be humble, we have to leave open that possibility that as strong as we believe about certain issues in our faith, we could be wrong. And God may be trying to find ways to help change us. And isn't it better to strive to be loving instead of striving to be right? Author and storyteller Pete Rollins has a challenging little book in, entitled The Orthodox Heretic and other impossible tales. Now, it's a collection of modern-day parables, and trust me when I tell you, they really make you think and wrestle with some difficult questions. In one of his parables called The Agnostic Who Became an Atheist, Rollins writes this. There once was a world-renowned philosopher who from an early age set himself the task of proving once and for all the non-existence of God. Of course, such a task was immense, for the various arguments for and against the existence of God had done battle over the ages without either side being able to claim victory. He was, however, a genius without equal. 
And he possessed a singular vision that drove him to work each and every day, long into every night, in order to understand the intricacies of every debate, every discussion, every significant work on the subject. The Philosopher's Project began to earn him respect among his fellow professors when, as a young man, he published the first volume of what would turn out to be a finely honed, painstakingly researched encyclopedic masterpiece on the subject of God. The first volume of this work argued persuasively that the various ideas of God that had been expressed throughout antiquity were philosophically incoherent and logically flawed. And as each new volume appeared, he offered time and time again devastating critiques about the theological ideas that had been propagated through different periods of history. And in his early 40s, he completed his last volume, which brought things up to the present day. However, the completion of this work really didn't satisfy him. He had still not found a convincing argument that would demonstrate once and for all about the non-existence of God. For he had shown, all he had shown was that all the notions of God up to that time had been problematic. So he spent another 16 years researching arguments and interrogating them with highly nuanced logical analysis. But by this time, he was in his late 50s. And he had slowly begun to despair, to despair of ever completing his life's project. Then, late one evening, when he was locked away in his study, bent wearily over his oak desk, surrounded by a vast sea of books, he felt a deep stillness descend upon the room. And as he sat there motionless, everything around him seemed to radiate an inexpressible light and warmth. And then deep in his heart, he heard the voice of God address him. Dear friend, said the voice, the task you have set yourself is a futile one. I have watched all these years as you poured your being into this endless task, yet you fail to understand that your project can be brought to completion only with my help. Your dedication and single-mindedness have not gone unnoticed, and therefore you have won my respect. As a result, I will tell you a sacred secret meant only for a few. Are you listening? Dear friend, I do not exist. Then all of a sudden, everyone appeared, everything appeared as it was before, and the philosopher was left sitting at his desk with a deep smile breaking across his face. He put his pen away. He left his study, never again to return. Instead, in gratitude to God for helping him complete his lifelong project, he dedicated his remaining years to serving the poor. So a word of advice. If you're still trying to decide if you like or hate that parable, then yes, you have heard it correctly. That's the challenge of a good parable that makes you think and question and doubt. One of my favorite Christian authors is Frederick Buechner. He puts it this way. Thus, many an atheist is a believer without knowing it, just as many a believer is an atheist without knowing it. You can sincerely believe there is no God and live as though there is. You can sincerely believe there is a God and live as though there isn't. And so it goes. Oh, yeah, we had a scripture reading today, didn't we? From the book of Jude. 
I'd like to close with two verses from that passage that Kathy Ankeny read for us. But you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Look forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to everlasting life. And have mercy on some who are wavering. It's easy to overlook that little phrase, isn't it? Have mercy on some who are wavering, who are doubting, who are struggling, because let's face it, at one time or another, or many other times, that's all of us. What a blessing that we serve a God who is big enough to handle our doubts, our questions, and our struggles. So let's get to doing the work that God has called us to do, to loving others, to caring for the poor, to reaching out to the marginalized, to giving ourselves away in love over and over again. And all God's people said...